0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Hans Peterson. Hans got involved in filmmaking when a good friend of his got the Baha'is in Budapest involved in creating a film called The Ortega Job. The collaborators created a second production called Mocha Frappuccino, which Hans directed. You can see the trailer for that film at www.mochafrappuccino.com, that's M-O-C-H-A-F-R-P-U-C-H-I-N-O.com. Hans also has a project ongoing to create Baha'i audiobooks. The website for this endeavor is www.voicesdivine.com. I started the interview by asking Hans where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, I grew up in Pasadena, California. It's about 10 miles northeast of Los Angeles. It's that part of Los Angeles that Hollywood likes to use for all the beautiful house fronts in TV and movie shows. Well, I lived there for about 11 years in my childhood from about 75 until 86. That was kind of an interesting time, I think, for to be growing up in that part of the city cuz I remember that there was, when I first moved there, there were issues of segregation or desegregation, where they were forcing us to go from one part of town to another school by bus. I didn't understand what that meant at the time, but it was later that I realized that that was something special that was happening in California that wasn't happening in other states other than in the South. Obviously, Los Angeles is a very multicultural place. A lot of my friends were either black or hispanic basically all kinds of colors and religions i think that left a big impression on me throughout my life i think i had a pretty good childhood my parents were very liberal in in how they they raised me and my sister in the sense that they gave us a lot of opportunities to experience other cultures and gave us a clear idea of that there's not just one uh, right way of doing things that being in California for example was their idea of showing us that the world is a bigger place whereas they grew up in the Midwest I think their idea of having us growing up in Los Angeles was that we would see more of the world than what they had seen when they were growing up
0: And what was religious life like growing up?
1: The first religious experiences I can remember were going to my parents' Presbyterian church in Pasadena. Then later, I remember switching from the Presbyterian church to a Lutheran church, which I think was something a little bit more comfortable for both of my parents. My father grew up in a Presbyterian home, so I think that's why we started off with the Presbyterian Church. And my mother's family was basically Lutheran. Somehow, I think, together they decided that uh, the Lutheran atmosphere was, was something more, more to their liking. I'm not sure exactly why. I remember that the church that we ended up going to was Messiah Lutheran Church in Pasadena, and it was a very family oriented church or I guess what I mean is that my parents and the parents of a couple of other kids my age had some seminary experience. My father uh, studied at a seminary and the father of another girl my age had studied at seminary and became a Lutheran minister. So our parents were really active in, in our religious education. So for example, when we had our first communion classes, and the confirmation preparation classes. Actually, our parents were the ones who were teaching us for those classes as a small group so that we would get together, the three families, with the parents and the children, and they would work through whatever books or material that we were using to teach us the concepts of the Lutheran faith, as they do when when you go through these First Communion and Confirmation So I remember going, for example, to Baja California or to the California desert, the three families together, for weekend retreats to meditate and to talk about the spiritual aspects of growing up and becoming an adult. I remember that very fondly, those experiences of having family, having my parents and and the parents of my friends teach us as opposed to having some kind of religious teacher like the the pastor of the church or somebody. And I think that gave us, I think, also a more open view because um, although they had gone to seminary, they weren't very dogmatic about anything. I remember one point earlier before the confirmation that the pastor of our church had mentioned that, that the Catholics believed that the Virgin Mary was somehow holier than other human beings. And he said, that's wrong. We don't believe that. And it, that kind of surprised me because that was really uh, such a strict kind of point of view that wasn't part of what my parents had been teaching us. When we went through these confirmation courses with the, just with the parents, it was really open and more based on spirituality rather than the dogma of of the church. Although there was some idea that, yeah, we're learning about what the Lutheran teachings are, and we were clear about that. But it was it was quite an open experience. Hans, what were your interests growing up? Mm, I've always had a great many interests growing up, and even even to now, I remember when I was very young, science was always a big love for me. I had all kinds of books about astronomy or the dinosaurs or physics and in that sense Pasadena was a great place to grow up because later as I went into junior high and high school I was able to go down to the California Institute of Technology where they offered special classes for high school and junior high school students in science. That was sort of something that I really valued. Well I did some musical endeavors I played the flute and the oboe in, in elementary school and high school. I was also in the Pasadena Boys Choir for three or four years. Later when actually when we moved from California in 1980, 1986 to move to Minnesota, I continued with the choir but then also got involved with speech competitions, speech team less involved with the team sports. I had been a swimmer and a water polo player my freshman year of high school, but somehow in Minnesota they didn't have water polo, so I didn't get reinvolved in sports at that time. Later I did rock climbing when I first went to Europe. I, rock climbing was my big love. As I got into my later years of high school and and into college, religion started to become more and more interesting to the point where I was looking looking into Buddhism, and I actually went to a Catholic university, so I was really happy I could take courses on, for example, the, a course on science and religion, or the Old Testament theology, and, and things like that. What was your study in college? I graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and German literature. And you, at that time, you were also pursuing
0: a spiritual education?
1: Well, not uh, formally exactly, but the university that I went to was the University of St. John's, and it was was started by Benedictine monks in central Minnesota. So part of their core curriculum of their idea of liberal arts is that students should have some education on, on religious issues. I really valued that. I, actually, I had a toss-up of universities. It was either going to be the Catholic school, which was a little closer to where my parents lived, or a Lutheran school, which, is, which was down in, in southern Minnesota. I went to, as I often do, I went for the more adventurous choice and picked the Catholic school simply because I wanted to know more about that particular part of, of religion which had been up until then a black hole for me. I didn't know much about the Catholic faith at that point. So I thought that that'd be good if I could go and learn something about that too. But actually my my interest in religion started, or it, really when I began exploring other religions other than what I had just been taught in Sunday school and when, in these confirmation courses, was somewhere when I was around mm, 17, 16, I was reading science fiction books by Arthur C. Clarke. He writes a lot about the Buddhist influence in his life. He, I guess he lived in Sri Lanka, and a lot of his books have a theme that relates in some way to Buddhism. That really touched me because it Buddhism, for me, was a religion that didn't have all that dogma, was open in the kind of way that my parents had taught me about being open and pl- pluralistic in religious ideas, and yet had that acceptance of the ideas of science. So there there isn't really anything that you can speak of to say that Buddhism conflicts with science in any way, as has been the history in the in the Christian religions. I guess that's the point where I started to say if somebody asked me that I felt more Buddhist than I did Christian, really. And that sort of lasted until basically more or less until I became a Baha'i shortly after I graduated from college. And what did you do after you graduated from college? I had spent about half of my college studies in Salzburg, Austria. So I had started in my sophomore year going to Salzburg, and then in the end it ended up that I was doing one semester in Salzburg and one semester in the United States. At the end of all that, I had met a a Hungarian girl who was living in Salzburg, who was studying music, piano, and decided to ask her to marry me. And we ended up getting married just after I graduated and getting started with our life in Salzburg. So I was actually I was teaching English and finishing up some courses that that I needed to, to complete my full my full degree. In Salzburg, just after the the official graduation,
0: what were the circumstances that you ran into the Baha'i faith?
1: Well, I guess it was in salzburg it's It's hard for me to remember now, but I remember that at some point uh, before I remember the concrete time when I sat down at the computer and i was and I was looking through scriptures of different religions, and I was just curious to see. What religions had what scriptures? I think I had some kind of idea that I was going to compile a digital database of the uh, scriptures of all the religions. And I came across the Baha'i Faith at that point. A few years back, and I don't remember exactly when that was, I had had some contact with somebody who was a Baha'i or somebody who knew about the Baha'i Faith. And they told me, or I got the impression that the Baha'i faith was was very eclectic, that it it was accepting of all the religions. That was a positive bit of information. It didn't inspire me to go deeper into it at that point. But when I finally, over the internet, ran into some websites that were talking about the Baha'i faith, that's when I really started to read the writings of Baha'u'llah and especially Abdul Baha quite intensively.
0: Abdu'l-Bahá being the son of Bahá'u'lláh, and, and I guess Bahá'u'lláh had said that after he passes that everyone should turn to his son, Abdu'l-Bahá, and so Abdu'l-Bahá had written a lot of writings that expounded on the teachings of Bahá'u'lláh.
1: You know, Abdu'l-Bahá always wrote in such a, uh, such a clear way and, and in some of his writings had really directed the message towards Christians and I'm thinking of the one book that was made the most sense to me or really influenced me the most, and that was the, the, the book called Some Answered Questions, which covered a lot of Christian topics in a way that was really refreshing. I think it was exactly at that point when I started reading Abdu'l-Bahá's explanations of Christian dogma from a different point of view that I started to really gain a new perspective on Christian faith, which I had kind of distanced myself from ever ever since I had run into Buddhism. And now I felt when I started reading about how the Baha'i faith looks at Christian issues and Christian theology, I felt like I was growing closer again to the to the Christian faith. That felt good because it, it was always a conflict in me that I had been raised Christian, but now I, I had kind of moved away from it in favor of something that was really quite different and I felt like that's that's that can't be right. Exactly that everything that I learned as a child can't be all wrong, but somehow so much of it was didn't really fit in with my scientific worldview that I just couldn't I couldn't balance the two out. So I was basically stuck with with Buddhism until I started reading about how Abdul Baha describes the Holy Trinity and other christian issues that that was really really nice to find out that everything that my parents had had brought me up with was still valid in a way that was that didn't really contradict anything in the bible that, that was still in harmony with with what my scientific the scientific side of my mind was looking for
0: are you able to describe for us what abdul bahá said about the trinity
1: yeah well as a christian i learned that it was a mystery that you have the three persons who who are in and of themselves each an integral part of the godhead that you have the god the father as as god you have jesus christ as as the son and then the holy spirit which is somehow that aspect of God which influences us directly through through our souls. And that idea that it's, that it's supposed to be mysterious was the most difficult part for me that how can Jesus be really an incarnate version of God or an incarnate person of God and yet God is in heaven and on earth at the same time. And it was Abdul Baha's explanation that God is like the sun in the sky that it can never come down to earth. And yet the rays of the sun, which are like the Holy Spirit, are what brings the heat and the light of the sun to earth, to humanity. And the mirror which reflects that light perfectly is analogous to uh, Jesus Christ or any of the other manifestations of God. Uh, such as Baha'u'llah or Muhammad or Moses. That finally was a description of of the Holy Trinity which made absolute sense. In a way, it's mysterious, but it's not that kind of mystery that challenges your perception of what's logical. It's still a a beautiful metaphor. When you look at somebody like Jesus Christ and hear him say, I am God, it's like looking at a mirror and saying, yes, that's the sun, and pointing to the reflection of the sun in the mirror, in that Jesus reflected all of the the attributes of God perfectly, and for him to ever say that he was God was absolutely true. But at the same time, he was simply a mirror reflecting the, the pure light of the sun, which was traveling to him and through him through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit as the rays of the sun.
0: You said you started your search and you were reading deeply including this this book called Some Answered Questions. Mm -hmm. So what happened in in your journey in this
1: regard? When I was in Salzburg, I had visited an English language international church a number of times and was good friends with the pastor of the church. But it was a relatively fundamentalist church, so very biblical and in the interpretation of, of the Bible. It was a really nice community, and I enjoyed spending time with them. but I picked up some ideas about the second coming of Christ that was uh, that was a little bit challenging that uh, that Jesus said there will be many false prophets and that we should be aware of them and that idea kept going through my mind again and again as I investigated the Baha'i faith into thinking is this is this what we're supposed to be to be aware of because as far as I was concerned everything that i was learning about the Baha- the bahai faith was almost too good to be true i mean here's a religion that is in harmony with with science and talks about concretely about equality between men and women and and all the races and unity and human society that would be that would be unified in a way that growing up in the cold war times for me was just incomprehensible so i was really concerned about this not being the right thing uh, not being true and i spent a lot of time reading more and more and trying to get the other side of the story and even i went to a, a church here in budapest where i asked the the pastor what he thought about the bahai faith and then finally i just hunted down the bahais here i sent an email i think to some bahais in england who had a website and he happened to know somebody here in budapest who eventually contacted me. He and a friend of his met with me in a Burger King in downtown Budapest, and that friendship became the seed of me becoming a more deepened Baha'i, essentially. I remember thinking that everything that I learned, as I learned more and more about the faith, that absolutely none of it was in conflict with what I had been raised with with this idea that that we're all equal, that everybody can be saved, in this idea that Jesus came to redeem us, and that eventually we will all find God and come closer to, to knowing God. And that kind of teaching when as I came across it again through the Baha'i Faith reminded me that and I told my mother this later quite a little bit facetiously, that that although my mother was a Christian, a Lutheran, and actually still is, that she had raised me as a Baha'i. That's why eventually it was becoming a Baha'i 11 years ago and 11 and a half years ago was something that wasn't a huge step for me because it was just acknowledging something that I felt was already true based on how I'd been brought up.
0: Hans, what were you doing at the time, occupation-wise, when you ran into the Baha'i faith and became a Baha'i?
1: I was teaching English, actually, here in Budapest. I had started teaching English at the Berlitz language schools almost as soon as I came to Budapest. Pretty much that's what I was doing when I became a Baha'i. The first five years uh, in Budapest was been teaching English in the language school. Either just after or during the time when I was... Getting Ready to Declare, which was about the same time that I left the language school and started working in a Persian restaurant with a friend of mine who wasn't Baha'i, a Muslim friend of mine, who I had met even before I had found out anything about the Baha'i faith. That kind of gave me a cultural perspective on on the Baha'i faith as something from Iran, something from Persia. So I learned what the Iranian friends who I had who were not Baha'is had been taught about the Baha'i faith when they were kids and growing up to see the contrast between what it really was and what my Iranian friends thought it was and I remember when I when I came back to the restaurant one day after after having just declared that I told my Iranian friends I've, be, I've become a Baha'i. They were open about that. They knew that what they had learned was probably not exactly true. So they greeted me as, as hey, brother, you're as if the, the Baha'i faith was just another sect of Islam, like the Sunni or the Shiite. Then they asked me some questions about how often I pray and, and other details and realized that, oh, maybe they were a little bit premature in greeting me as a brother. But still, they accepted me as, as a Baha'i, and they, they were open about that. To find out from them how they had been indoctrinated with the idea that the Baha'i faith isn't a religion but a political movement or something was fascinating and something I really value now to have had right at the beginning of becoming a Baha'i because now I can see what the root cause is for what's happening in in Iran right now where so many persecutions against Baha'is are taking place.
0: How does that inform your take on that?
1: well it gives me um a perspective that that i see that a lot of good people in iran are are just so misinformed about what the bahai faith is that it's hard to blame them for their opposition to it because essentially they're ignorant of what the situation really is about you know they're taught that the bahai faith is a political movement that was that was invented by i think by the british or by the russians and now it's being supported by Israel and the United States. From my point of view, I can see how, how ridiculous that is. But when that's all you're ever taught from a very young age, I can also see how that can have such a big influence on their decisions to be to be opposed to it later in life.
0: And you said you were going through a occupational transition at this point?
1: At that time, I had kind of burnt out of teaching. I had been teaching for five years and had a, a management position in the school as a teacher supervisor. I was getting bored of that. So I jumped at the opportunity to to manage this Persian restaurant with my Iranian friend and completely left the school and devoted my the next six, seven months of my life to 12 to 16-hour days at the restaurant which was a great opportunity actually to not only get myself away from the stress and boredom of language teaching at the time and start doing something as exciting as running a restaurant and, and actually finally learning Hungarian. Because although I had been here for five years, I never had to speak Hungarian in the school. And my wife spoke perfect English and German, so I there was no need for me to speak Hungarian. But at that point... Moving into the restaurant, that was that was an excellent opportunity to finally learn the language that I should have learned a lot earlier. And
0: when was it that you started getting into film, Hans?
1: I guess that's something recent if we speak strictly about film.
0: Why don't you describe for us the transition from managing a, an Iranian restaurant to where you are today then?
1: Oh, that's, that gets complicated, actually, because <laughs> I was in the restaurant for six months. And then it started to bother me, the fact that uh, we were selling alcohol and making quite a large profit off of it. That was something I felt I had to take care of. So I, so I left the restaurant and went back to teaching for a little while. Then I got a job as a as a human resource consultant and did some recruiting and headhunting. And then later, I worked for the Hungarian press agency as a as a consultant also for for some human resource and strategy issues and then later, I started working for an engineering company, basically working on marketing and writing English presentations and setting up the website and things like that so professionally, filmmaking has never really been in there. But back when I was in in college, I did make a very amateur film with my classmates for one of my for one of my courses on German fairy tales. This community of Baha'is that we have in Budapest, you have to know, is really active and really a dynamic community, especially with youth activities like making little short films or musically active we have some we have quite a few musicians in the bahai community here in budapest so there's there's an artistic feeling to the budapest bahai community that is that is really special a good friend of mine actually had been making these amateur films about various topics unrelated to the bahai faith but still using most of the bahai community of budapest as actors or or to take part in the films. The most recent one uh, that was done, that was finished a few years ago, called The Ortega Job, I actually acted in and, and helped out with. And then he started producing this new film called Mocha Frappuccino. And I think it was about two years ago that it really got started, got off the ground. He asked, his name is Arjang, He Arjang asked me if I would play one of the characters in the movie and help with the writing and if I knew anybody who or any way that we could get a good digital camera I had one I was very keen to have a bigger role in this movie than in the previous ones so we we got started and as we started filming more and more scenes we started to have more and more concrete roles eventually after a few weeks we realized that he was going to be the producer of this movie and I would be the director and uh, a third friend of ours Najee would be the cameraman and the editor uh, sort of the director of cinematography if you will it just started getting bigger and bigger so the story itself was quite set at the beginning but it became now to the point where we have I'd say more than 100 characters or 100 actors in the film including including some famous uh, Hungarians that are taking part with quite big name sponsors like the Marriott Hotel here in Budapest, or Red Bull, or the the largest cinema in Budapest has has agreed to let us use their largest theater for our premiere in the spring of 2010. It's kind of all been a chaotic but in some way well-directed growing process in making in making this project what it is now, which is more or less, it's a. F- I, I think there are some. There are two or three concrete goals that that we're really intent on making real in this film. The the one that we feel most right now is the fact that by doing this film ourselves and working with the friends in our in our community and actually bringing in friends also from Austria and Slovakia. Today we were just filming with a a girl from Serbia. Really, people from all over the world have come to Budapest to be in our film or have come to Budapest and ended up in our film that we've made a really good community-building project out of this, that we come together, we film together, we take lots of pictures, we put them on Facebook, We have a lot of fun, and that's a really positive experience that that goes home with the people who are taking part as something that bonds us together. So that's the one thing that, that has come out as a benefit of the project. The other thing is that it's a charity project, so nobody's getting paid to do this. All of our sponsors are very willing to help us out by providing us with presidential hotel suites or... In this case, we're, we're filming a spoof of the 24 TV show. We have some anti-terrorist activities going on in the movie, so we've, we've had to borrow guns and uniforms from another one of our sponsors. In the end, when we have our big premiere night, we're selling tickets and raising money, which we are going to give to the International Women's Club of Budapest, who sponsors a number of orphanages around, around Hungary to feed the kids at those orphanages. The last movie raised about $5,000 in exactly the same way, and this one's even bigger, so we're looking forward to raising a lot more this time. And the third thing, actually, is that we've incorporated some ideas of the Baha'i Faith into the movie. The title of the movie is Mocha Frappuccino. The subtitle to that is Because Milk and Coffee Have No Prejudice. The idea here is that a couple of the characters in the film are gypsies, and a couple of the other characters are a little bit prejudiced against gypsies. Our main character, who is actually a gypsy, has to fight with that prejudice, eventually finds a way to overcome it. Actually, the study circle books that that we use in the Baha'i faith, that we use to teach each other about spiritual principles, comes up in the movie as one of those elements that helps overcome the prejudicial tendencies of the characters who who have those prejudices. So we have a message of anti-prejudice and a little bit of a message also of the fact that we are, that we're more spiritual than we sometimes feel, that there's more to life than just the material existence. So those are the three big reasons that that we're doing this and you have a website that's promoting the movie that's right it, it's a bit difficult to find because of the many variations on spelling for mocha Frappuccino
0: you said that you the project started with about three people one was yeah uh, yeah ended up being the producer one ended up being the uh, I guess the cameraman and you ended up being the actor. Here. The director. The director, okay. So yeah. th- now it's evolved to where it is today, and you are I guess you're going to have your premiere this spring. When did you start the project with
1: just the three of you? It was about two years ago. It wasn't, no, it wasn't too long ago, but it, it feels now like it's been long because basically we do filming on on Sundays whenever we can get the required people together, some of whom are from Austria or... Uh, other countries as I mentioned so sometimes there's there's a good passage of time between two film shoots and it probably has taken longer than if we had you know, just done it all in consecutive days but in this way it really draws out and becomes quite a long project I'm
0: kind of curious why the sponsors are so attracted to supporting this project
1: I think it helps just to ask nicely and tell them that their money that the money that we're going to raise with this is going for a good cause. Some of them like the fact that we always offer to let them act in the movie in some smaller or greater role. I don't know, I think maybe it's just divine blessings that somebody up there wants this movie to be to be made and no matter who we ask for help with this, they always say yes. Or at least if they've said no, I don't remember. (laughs) But just been really fortunate, yeah. Yeah.
0: So your premiere is this spring. So are you wrapping up production?
1: Yeah, today was the second to last production day. We did some filming of some scenes that, that were just filler scenes, basically. And then next Sunday we have to redo some scenes that through evaluation, looking back at the tapes that we had already recorded, that... We had to redo a couple of things. So we have a big day of action filming next Sunday as well. And then I think we're pretty much done for the the actual filming. Following that, it'll just be a few months of of editing and then marketing, where we're going to put out a new trailer, start sending emails to all of our friends that they should prepare for. I think we've set a date with this theater in Budapest that we're going to show the film on May 8th here in Budapest, 2010. So we've got a bit of time to, to edit, but, but it's coming up soon.
0: So are any ideas for new films bubbling up in your head while you're wrapping this one up?
1: I've had some ideas, yeah. I think, though, what, what we're looking at probably in the future is instead of doing such a long and drawn-out project, to focus more on some short films something that can be filmed over one or two days in a weekend really try and get more quality message into our films rather than spend two years on on a big production with action and lots of actors to focus on shorter messages that we can really do in a in a much shorter time and maybe get more stuff out a little sooner. A lot sooner. Now I've been hoping to return to Los Angeles and move back to, to my homeland and I've been I'm putting that off now until we make the premiere. So I don't know what's gonna happen with our, our filmmaking projects after, after May when this is all done and and potentially I might be going back to hopefully to Los Angeles. And what's calling you back to Los Angeles? Well, the fact that I I haven't lived close to my family for for 15 years now, I miss that. In the last couple of years, I've taken a couple of business trips back to to California, and I started to get homesick. Budapest is an exciting and and fun place to live, and I certainly have great friends, and, and we have a great community here. But at the same time, when I got off the plane in Los Angeles and smelled the air... And those memories from my childhood came rushing back. It was really tempting to to just stay there. But uh, responsibilities called me back home. But I decided that it was pretty close to time that I should head back and at least spend a few more years in California before heading off somewhere else exotic.
0: And what do you think you want to do when you're back home?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure yet. I've spent the last fifteen years as an English teacher and a, and a restaurant manager and such a wide variety of things that you know it really could be anything. It's hard to pin down the kind of job that that is going to be waiting for me when I get off the plane in L.A. I think recently I've been really interested in business. Uh, with the last five years as as a a marketing manager and a product manager for this this company here in Hungary was a lot of fun and showed me that although I studied psychology and had some hopes one day long ago of becoming a, a clinical psychologist, that that's not really for me, but rather something more along the lines of some kind of business career. I don't know if you knew about this before the interview, but I've also got a small private little project of my own to record bahai books as audiobooks and put those online and that's something that i've been thinking about doing actually I have a website that's set up for that i hope to have up and running within a few weeks or months that's something that might be the the bridge that takes me back to america as well at the same time
0: now how would that work would you be doing all the recording of the of the books
1: Probably not me alone. I think the nice thing about the Baha'i faith is the variety of people that, that we have in the communities. And it'd be a shame if, if it was only my voice reading from the writings. Essentially, my, my dream would be to have a Baha'i audiobook publishing trust to bring really good voice actors together and record the writings of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha and the Bab and make them available as really high-quality audiobooks online for download with my voice in the beginning, but then hopefully it would become popular enough that there'd be demand to hear other books and materials recorded by other voices. I have a friend in in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona, who is just finishing up her first audiobook of one of the Baha'i, writings, and I think that's a really good thing that I hope, I'd hope i like to see more of that happening. One of the really great ways to, to learn anything nowadays is to download or buy books on CD or, or audio books on the internet and listen to them when you're driving to work or something on your MP3 player or when you're at the fitness center or whatever. And I think that the fact that we don't have the Baha'i books really in, in that format yet is something that we can work towards.
0: And where are you at the moment in the project?
1: Well, I've got, uh, the website is all set up, and at the moment there are a number of podcasts from the Baha'i World News Service, which I've recorded, a couple of which ha- have been recorded by this friend of mine in in Arizona named Leanne. It's, it took a while to set up this nice website where we've got some nice graphics and, and a good format for presenting the the writings and the news reports of the Baha'i World Center in a, in a nice way. And it's at www.voicesdivine.com. I think right now I'm waiting for to, ha- to have less to do in the way of the filmmaking or my other obligations at, at the moment and some time to sit down on a weekend with a director and record the second half of my first book, as well as perhaps I'd like to do the hidden words as the first one, and then some answered questions as as the follow-up.
0: So you mentioned the hidden words. For those mm-hmm. who aren't familiar with Baha'i literature, what is the hidden
1: words? Well, the hidden words is a very short compilation of, well, short in comparison to uh, the longer pieces of scripture in, in any of the major religions, but it's a very short uh, little compilation of verses that was written by Baha'u'llah and is really the essence of the message of God to humanity with advice about how to behave or I I don't want to put it in in too basic a, a way but just really beautiful statements of Essentially, God speaking directly to to us. Altogether, it's about from an audiobook perspective. I think it's less than an hour. Uh, with I don't know exactly how many verses. I, do you happen to know that?
0: I don't. But I was wondering, maybe if you had the book handy, you could share one of the verses so people can get a sense of what you're talking about.
1: Okay. O son of being, with the hands of power, I made thee. And with the fingers of strength, I created thee. And within thee, I have placed the essence of my light. Be thou content with it, and seek not else. For my work is perfect, and my command is binding. Question it not, nor have a doubt thereof.
0: Well, Hans, thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Thank you very much, it's been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Hans Peterson a Baha'i currently residing in Budapest, who directed the film Mocha Frappuccino and has started a Baha'i audiobooks project. You can see the trailer for Mocha Frappuccino at www.mochafrappuccino.com. That's M-O-C-H-A-F-R-A-P-U-C-H-I-N-O dot com. And you can see his audiobook project at www.voicesdivine.com For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective
2: We're happy with death breathing in and out. The ones that when you say let's go make a difference, they'll say, nah, that's okay. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: So I don't waste time on the flip side, cause I do know the real on the flip side. And I'm crystal clear every day, that's why I say. We read here in view Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Rippleton. Who used to always say when she was living Like fine wine and like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty <laughs> I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough as long as my heart beats i am giving up That's why I say every day What do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision. And if it's now, strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's us through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the car. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride right at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody.
3: Say, God, sufficeth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens are in the earth, but God suffiseth. Say, God, suffiseth all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens are in the earth, but God suffiseth. Say God, Say God. suffiseth Verily is in himself and knower, the sustainer Barely is in himself the knower, the sustainer Beyond it, Beyond it, beyond, beyond Beyond, independent, independent, beyond, beyond, independent, beyond Say God, God suffices suffice all things above all things. And nothing in the heavens are in the earth, but God suffices. Say God suffices all things above all things. And nothing in the heavens are in the earth, but God suffices. Verily, he is in Himself and nowhere the sustainer. Verily, he is in Himself and nowhere the sustainer. Verily, is in Himself and nowhere the sustainer. Verily, is in Himself and nowhere the sustainer.